podcast has bad words. <laughs> Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing that's just feeding your greed Oh, I bet that you'll be fine without it All right, and here we are. And before we dive into our surprise questions today, and before we talk about sex, religion, race, and other disagreements... Let's read some more about Les. The article I have here today is by Seth Godin. You know, I, I listen to Seth's podcast, and TK is at the end of every podcast now uh, on Seth Godin's podcast. Oh, wow. Yeah, how did that whole thing happen, actually? First of all, I love Seth Godin, man. Yeah, he's great. I love Seth Godin, man. He's, he's the man. Um, and his blog is just amazing. He, he somehow gets in and out. Like, he, he wastes no time. You want to talk about blogging efficiency. Yeah. You know, like he is the king of, of six or seven sentences. Like the most That leave blogging. you with a week's yeah. worth. I mean, but he can write long form. Yeah, it's not like a limitation. We'll it's, it's, yeah. Again, it's about uh, so what we were talking about in that, that first segment there was, was what is appropriate. And for him, it's like, what's the appropriate length? He's not going to take uh, 100 pages to, yeah. ta- to write something that requires 100 words. Yeah. And sometimes people try, you know, oh, I've got a, I've got a really good title for a book, so I guess I should turn yeah. it into a book. No, maybe it's a short blog post. Yeah. Th- there, there are some books you read, man, where you feel like this was a good blog post, and it looks like they just needed to meet the 200-page requirement and just extended it unnecessarily. Yeah. Seth Godin never does that. If, if he's only got 30 pages worth of words to say, he's not afraid to drop a 30-page book. Right. If he's got 200 pages, he'll give you 200 pages. Yeah. He's the man. So I, I actually went through his all-MBA program. And, uh, and I've done some coaching with, with All-NBA as well. And so um, we had an uh, awesome uh, coaches event in New York. Um, the people in that community, in his All-NBA community, are, are, are really wonderful, good people. Um, and so, you know, I had an opportunity to just talk about my experience in that program and um, the way it impacted me, the, the way those friendships and connections and the coaching have had a positive impact on my life. I imagine, so, yeah, I imagine awesome. there's a lot of overlap between his All-NBA program and... Praxis, your company. Uh, so, so maybe talk to me a little bit about that. So, talk about Praxis for those of you who didn't listen to your your first two episodes with us. Yeah, yeah. So, so I mean, Praxis is an apprenticeship program where we focus on helping aspiring professionals launch their careers, and we're credential agnostic. You know, if you don't have a college degree, we're not going to turn you away. If you do, we're not going to fall on our knees and worship you, right? Like we don't care about your credentials. We care about your willingness to work hard, your willingness to create value, your willingness to translate your talents, your gifts, your potential into service. Um, and what we do is we have our participants do a professional boot camp where they learn a lot of the skills necessary to make them hireable and indispensable. The way I like to put it is, we want people to be so excited about the possibility of working with you mm-hmm. that they get excited about hiring you. Yeah. And then we want them to be so excited about the actual experience of working with you that they want to keep you around. And so everything in our boot camp is designed to do those two things, make them hireable, make them indispensable, and then they do a six-month apprenticeship with the startup. So It's kind of like a, a vocations, vocational school for white-collar. 
work. Exactly. What trade school is for, for construction, uh-huh. we are for things like operations, sales, marketing, customer success, and so forth. That's awesome. So, so, so we get people kind of like at that entry level stage, you know, where they're younger, just getting started. Um, and there's no age limit for all MBA either, but all MBA usually a lot of people that are, they've started their professional careers, but, but they're looking to level up, mm-hmm. right? Um, they're looking to find new ways uh, through creativity, through community, through the guidance of coaching to kind of take their career to the next level. You know, I, I, I tell my Praxis participants that, you know, after you've been at a job for about a year, Auto MBA is a great program to kind of help you take things to the next level. Gotcha, yeah, yeah. Cool. It's, it's, it's the, the graduate school uh, beyond Praxis, so to speak, if, if we're thinking in conventional terms. Hey, man, if Seth has no problem with that framing, I don't either. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right, this article from Seth is called Loud Voices versus important ones. Try to say that three times fast, Ryan. No. (laughs) (laughs) You're always disagreeing with me. Uh, Broken systems get worse when we confuse the loud voices with the important ones. I think about social media when, when when I read this. Spend a lot of time listening to the loudest complaints and you will elevate those voices to importance because you're no longer carefully listening to the more easily overlooked constituents. A pers- this is also this would be apt for like local politicians or even national politicians. If you're checking your Twitter mentions, at people yelling at you as a those aren't necessarily your constituents or the people you're trying to help. It's a very small minority quite uh, quite often. You know, it's the very vocal one percent or ten percent or whatever. Mm-hmm. Whereas the other ninety to ninety nine percent may have radically different opinions. Um, uh, constituents, a persistent typist with a keyboard might be a cranky critic. But is this person the person you set out to serve? That's that's the best sentence in this article for me, man. Because we talk about differentiating between critics and uh, or between criticism and feedback. Uh-huh. And criticism is someone just swooping down, they shit on your work, and then they take off. The seagull effect. Yeah, where where with uh, with with feedback, it's someone who's trying to bring value to the conversation. They're, they're actually interested in what you're saying and they're wondering if you've considered this point. And, and I love that. I, it's a disagreement sometimes and I love having those disagreements because it does help me to either look at my work differently or it helps me to uh, you know stand firmer with my work. Yeah. But the critics, man, you gotta, be able to, you gotta be able to ignore them. If an airline makes 84% of its profit on leisure travels, travelers it's not clear that the person who flies once a year on a last minute first class fare is the person they ought to be paying the most attention to Mm. we can acknowledge that someone is upset we can see them respect them and help them but we shouldn't get confused that there's a correlation between their all caps effort at attention Mm. and our agenda to serve the people we seek to serve this makes me think of remember when we were in the corporate world our ceo used to talk about uh there are customers you want and there are customers you don't want. Mm-hmm. And this is like a perfect summary of you can kind of, you know, pick out the customers that you want to serve and the customers yeah. that you, not that you necessarily don't want to serve, but the ones that uh, you're not, you're not targeting, you know, the customers that you don't want essentially. Yeah. So, so to reference Seth Godin, one of the questions he's very fond of is who is it not for, you know? And I would add to that if, if you can't answer that question, you might be in a cult. <laughs> right? Um, like, who is it not for? And, and, and this can bring a lot of peace to the creative process. If I'm making a piece of art, if I'm writing a blog post, who is it not for? Right? Like, like who's the person I'm not trying to reach? I'm not trying to influence. I'm not trying to inspire. Uh, my colleague Isaac Morehouse says, decide who you want to be a hero for 
and then ignore the rest. Ignore mm-hmm. everyone else. You know, um, just because someone out there disagrees doesn't mean you need to change who you are, or how you do things. There's no universal approach you can take to anything that's gonna make everyone love you. Yeah. And I, I think as a kid, I was kind of brought up with that point of view. People would have their examples like, oh, but Jesus, he, speak, he spoke a message of love and he used stories and he spoke to the children and he got killed for his beliefs, yeah. right? Um, who is this person that adopted such a universal, uh, well-communicated message that no one got angry, that no one got offended. Mm. That person doesn't exist, yeah. you know? That's it, the truth. It, it, I think about when people ask like, who is minimalism for? And for, for me, I, it's easier for me to actually frame that when I, when I talk about who it's not for. It's, mm. If you're content with the status quo in your life, that's great, good on you. Mm-hmm. Then I don't think minimalism is a tool that's really going to help you. You know, if, if you don't have any nails to hammer, then the hammer isn't really going to do much good for you. Yeah. And, and in fact, you can just use that hammer to bludgeon people, which I, I don't want you to do with minimalism either. I, yeah. When we were talking about Michelle's question earlier, like the thing I, she said she didn't want to do is like, I don't want to beat people over the head with my minimalism. And so that's what she was she was trying to avoid, yeah. and and I think that's important here. Like we, we want to avoid uh, trying to sort of proselytize. When we were proselytizing, and it's like yes, everyone is welcome. Yeah, maybe everyone is welcome, but it may not be appropriate for everyone. Yeah, this makes me think of uh, Derek Sivers' quote: um, "You know, proudly exclude ninety nine percent of people." Yeah. And and what I what I love about that is, especially with this topic of disagreements, is like you can proudly exclude ninety nine percent of people, but you can still respect them. Right, Ooh, right. It, you, you, it, the key is to not let them run the conversation, or or right. yeah, so yeah. If you have or the creation, if if we only listen to Twitter seagulls, right? The mm-hmm. people who swooped in on Twitter, pooped on our work, and then just flew away, <laughs> yeah. like we would be creating something for people who are probably never going to get much value from it anyway. Right. And even if we do, we're accidentally going to exclude the people that we're trying to help right now. Yeah. And I think that's important. We can accept feedback because feedback presents a potential solution. Doesn't mean we need to take it. Doesn't mean we have to, to say that is the solution, mm. but we can listen to it. And as you said, we can respect them without saying just being dismissive, but we can be dismissive of people who just present the problem with no solution. Solution. Those are the critics. If you're yeah. just showing me the problem, then that's not very helpful. Yeah. If you're showing up with a solution, I can at least say, oh, I respect that. Maybe I disagree with it. Maybe it's not appropriate for us, but thank you for coming to the table with yeah, it. Absolutely. You know, you know, it's funny though. you're talking about the uh, the message of Jesus and the love and yeah. and it is a very consistent message of love. Yeah, which but, was communicated quite well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But But I mean, even looking at that, how many different sects of Christianity are there? I mean, it's like you can even you, everyone can uh, hear the same thing, and we all we all interpret it differently, and that's that's okay. And how many non-believers in Jesus are there? Yeah, right? like like you yeah. can be the best at communicating your message. It doesn't mean that um, there's some technique for communicating that's going to force people to agree with you. Um, one of the things you talked about, um, I think, is illustrated very well in stand-up comedy. If you tell a joke, and there's someone in the audience that doesn't get it, and you stop to explain the joke you just lost all the people who do get it, right? Mm -hmm. That sometimes you have to just move on Mm -hmm. and let some people not get it. And and Mm -hmm. really all you have to do in order to do that is to just not be arrogant, to not make the mistake of thinking that you are you are salvation to the world. Mm. That, that, That if you are not the one who gets through to people, they'll never get the truth they need. No, 
Um, there are plenty of people out there that have good ideas and people will get what they need if they're seeking truth without you. Yeah. yeah. Let's talk about productive disagreements. The thing that I like about TK is he does these sort of what I would call steel man in your steel man in your arguments, right? Steel. Yeah, instead <laughs> of the straw man. Instead of straw man. Yeah, you you uh, you, you present. In, in fact, so I remember we were sitting at Blue Bottle Coffee. I think this is before you moved away from California. Before you left us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and. We were having. By the way, he said he likes me. You said you love. <laughs> He's like, I like TK. Okay, thanks, oh, man. it's it's uh, it's possible to not like certain people but love them. Yeah, oh. that's. Well, yeah. I, I might rather be liked. Come to think of it, I, I think some of my family members feel that way about me. <laughs> no, I, I think I think it's uh, it's important to be. But in fact, I quite often will say it to Bex, I, I like you, like instead of saying I love you, because that's important. There are some people I've loved that the relationship did not end up working because I didn't yeah. like them very much, or maybe they didn't like me, mm. and and so I think it's important to to actually do to have both. Yeah. So I love and like you, TK. I love and like you. That's, that's what I'm going to start telling and, Mariah. And, 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 uh, what, and what I one one thing that I like is that. When we we were having a pretty delicate conversation about race in America, we were at that, that blue bottle, and the thing that was fascinating to me is I found mid-conversation, you actually changed your stance in the argument, <laughs> but what I could tell is, oh... What, here's what TK's doing. He's arguing both sides. I don't even know what his opinion is on this. <laughs> he was like sticking up for like the all lives matter people at one point. Oh, and man. I could see what, why their point of view. But what he was, in my mind, what I saw him doing was like, hey, man, my argument, if I have a, an argument on either side mm. of this, it better be strong enough that I can argue the other point as well. I love that. Because it's either going to make me change my point of view if I argue the other side. Or it's going to solidify my own points and make them you know, razor sharp as opposed to just these blunt objects mm -hmm. that we start hitting people with. Well, I mean, it, it comes back to making people feel understood. And like, to me, that's a sign of TK's character. Like, that's that's awesome that, you know, you can look like I can look at All Lives Matter and maybe not agree with it, but I totally understand where they come from. And again, like that is that is where the disagreements can be productive mm -hmm. is when you do try to look at both sides, try to understand where people are coming from. That's because the, the worst thing anyone can do is, you know, like go to religion. When I was growing up, I was so solid in my faith, man. Like you could not, you know, you could not. I could make up, I could do any mental najitsu in my head to make my beliefs 100% accurate. And when someone challenged them, it was never a matter of me like really listening to their points and trying to understand where they were coming from. Mm. It was really about me trying to find the flaws in their arguments and where's the little chink in their armor that I can like take them down. And if anything, like those discussions, it just helped me to be firmer. In my own belief, I, like I just, you know, instead of going closer to their side, I was drawing further away from their side yeah. where, where, uh, yes, like looking at a disagreement, looking at an argument as a dance or, uh, as what I, or as a song, whatever else you said, it's like that trying to get closer to that person's point of view. That is where, uh, well, everyone's going to learn. And if, if honestly, let's say you're arguing with someone who thinks that the, the world is flat, okay? I mean, like, we got flat earthers out there, right? Trying to bombard them with all of the reasons why they're so stupid, like, that is not going to draw them closer to yeah. the truth. That is just, uh, they're just, we're just affirming everything that they already believe about why uh, the world is flat. Uh, so, yes, like, just trying to, 
again, trying to understand people, that is going to draw them closer to your side than uh, the being divisive. Yeah, exactly. The, the song metaphor is an important one because uh, I think of what Rob Bell says when when he is faced with critics or and and or people want to debate, have a debate with with him. He said, "I'm not trying to debate people. I'm He's trying so diffusing them." Right, yeah, he said, I'm trying to help people hear the music. Yeah. As opposed to, because, and guess what you don't hear when you when you have a, an argument or debate on a stage? They're not hearing the music. You, mm. you have this party of people who are debating this party of people, and this, this person, I think a political debate, this person just becomes the avatar for your beliefs, as opposed to... Oh, I'm willing to change my mind with this. Nope, I'm already dug in, and this is this is my person. These are my views, and of course, they're infallible. Yeah, you, you know, it, it's something because we we often use a phrase like, "Ah, oh, how could you possibly think that way?" As, as if that's an insult to the other person. Uh, when in reality, I think it's an expression of um, a weakness on our end. It, it means you have a lack of influence. The the less you are able to understand what makes other people tick and how they form their beliefs, the less effective you'll be in navigating your own reality. Mm. So on the surface, it might appear to be this compassionate thing, and I believe it is, but it's also a very self-interested thing to do the work necessary to understand points of view that are different from your own. Mm -hmm. It's not about being a sellout, it's about being so concerned about having the power to create the results that matter most to you, that you do the work necessary to understand the conditions that affect your ability to do that very thing. So for example, there's a movie starring Holly Berry called Gothica, and she has this weird, inexplicable experience that results in her waking up one day in an asylum. She has no clue how she got there. She knows that she does not belong there. And every time she tries to convince someone that a mistake has happened, that she's in a wrong place, how do you think they react? They react to her as if that's just more evidence that you belong here. Mm. So when you're in a situation like that's, that. That it becomes uh, inarguable at some point, right? Be mm -hmm. Because uh, I think about, Ryan and I were having this conversation. I forgot who I heard talking about it originally. Uh, it may have been Sam Harris or, or, or someone, but uh, when we're confronted with like, there's this there's this fringe group of people who accuses everyone of being racist now mm -hmm. a and uh when you engage them you say well actually i'm not racist why, why would you think i'm i'm racist tk let's have a discussion about this and if your response was i would but i don't have discussions with racists right. well then i like what there's nothing i could do yeah. right you, yeah. You yeah talk about a straw man argument yeah we were talking about like why i can't have a conversation with my father is because oh, he's yeah. so he's so set in the in his uh, thinking with uh, how he interprets the Bible, and yeah. it's like I, again, I try to have a conversation with him. He's like, "Well, I don't talk to non-Bible students," yeah. and it's like, "Well, why don't you?" Oh, I talk to you about it, but I don't talk to people who don't study the Bible, and it's like, yeah. And so now all learning <clears throat> is there. Okay, yeah. so so real quick with right. this Gothica thing, yeah. Let's look at the situation. She's real in. quick. We got time, man. Unpack <laughs> <laughs> it. I'm not used to. I mean, I might interrupt talk. you. I might interrupt you again, but. <laughs> Oh, we got time, man. I'm going to interrupt you like 10 more times. <laughs> so she's in this situation and she's bas she basically has two choices. Uh -huh. One choice is to get self-righteous about it and say, ah, nobody understands the truth. I'm the only one here who knows what's true. And she'd be Isn't right. that's how most of us are? That's how most of us are. Oh. And she'd be right. She would have a logical basis for being that way. And guess what? She'd be stuck in that asylum. So the only way to get what she wants, forget about even being compassionate right now, right? The only way for her to get where she needs to be is to step back and say, all right, everybody thinks I belong here. 
I got to find out why they think that way. I have to find out how their minds work Mm -hmm. because if I'm going to get out of here, I have to communicate to them in a way that th- that's going to cause them to receive my message. Don't tell us right? the ending. I want to watch this movie. I, I'm, I'm not going to tell you the <laughs> ending. And, and and I think that's a great metaphor for life as well. You know, when when you look at people who believe strange things or who are easy to make fun of, mm-hmm. yeah, you can have the cheap win of laughing at them and dismissing them. And, you know, that'll get you some clout amongst people who pride themselves on being smarter than everyone else. Right. But at some point, you gotta bring the conversation back to what are the results that matter most to me and how can I best position myself to create those results, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, so and, and this- a much better question than, than accusations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this movie sounds way better than Inception, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, you gotta watch it first. <laughs> I, I have a history of, of, of getting like good illustrations from movies that people will then go watch and they're like, man, you wasted two hours of my time. <laughs> so maybe read the Wikipedia description. Uh, you, but that's funny. Like, I wouldn't say Inception was a waste of time. It was, although- I literally I fell asleep while watching I might have joked it. about that earlier. It was like, it was worth watching. No pun intended. Uh, no, that, that's weird. Like, I might still be sleeping right oh now. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. It's really a good movie, but you're having a dream that it's bad. It's so easy for us to get caught up in thinking that we are the only- you know, the only right opinion or our tribe is the only right tribe. And you know, like that's, that's human nature, man. Like not, not just humans, but every species on this planet is solipsistic. Like the world, it literally revolves around us and it's hard not to take a stance like that. But yeah, like asking these questions, uh, it it just helps us, helps us get, helps us have less friction through the world and create better relationships, honestly. You don't believe in space, do you, bro? <laughs> NASA's a lie. <laughs> All right, so so let's talk about accidentally offending people mm. with the language that we use. Yeah. We, were t- we, we touched on this a little bit at lunch the other day. Uh, there's one thing that I say that is often misconstrued by Ryan. When I say something's pretty good, I mean it was... It was better than good. Yeah. And Ryan's language, when he says something is pretty good, he it's a you, little less than good. Yeah. He yeah. he uses the modifier in a strange way, but <laughs> yeah. hey, I I get it. It's colloquial, right? <laughs> and and so we we have differing language, and so I have to be careful with that. There'll be sometimes I'll write like a book, and Ryan's like, "Yeah, that wasn't terrible." Actually, his his exact phrase is, "That's not terrible." Yeah. If I say it wasn't terrible, yeah, then that is pejorative. But if I say that's not terrible, right, then that means oh, it's like man, saying bad so... is good. He, he it's a it's a comp- <laughs> when he says something's not terrible, he's actually complimenting you. <laughs> you need I'll like say, a, a Ryan handbook. Yeah. To know how to... Sometimes I'll say that's not terrible, and Josh would be like, "What are you talking about? That's not terrible. It's awesome." I'm like, "Yeah, that's what I'm trying to say." <laughs> I spent twelve hours on this stupid blog post, <laughs> and you're telling me it's not terrible you know how much work i put into this and <laughs> and really what he said and so you have to also be what i've realized it's being forgiving of someone not of that person but of their language and and making room for interpretation mm-hmm. uh, quite often is what someone says isn't always what they what they mean to say mm-hmm. we were at uh dinner we uh, we're at Tatsu Ramen. He's got tons of West examples of when we don't agree. And, no, this, was, this had nothing to do with me. I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. And, in fact, this was uh, you, so it was me and you and Bex and, and and Mariah and you. You were just loving the ramen noodles that they made. And you looked up and you said, "You're sitting right next to Mariah." And <laughs> I very, looked her right in the eye. Very, very definitively, very definitively said, 
this is the best meal I've had, and I can't remember <laughs> how long. <laughs> and and she looked like she just had like this entire expression like squeegeed over her face, where it was like, "But I cook for us four nights a week." Like that's what her expression said. Yeah. And and I. And then, like, what Ryan actually meant, and I, because I know Ryan so well, I knew what he meant. Like, this is the best restaurant meal I've had in a long time, and he delineates that. And so sometimes it's it's just a point of clarification, being careful with the language you use. Because he, he could have said, this is the best restaurant meal I've had in a long time. Totally would have been, uh, it, would yeah. have, it would have separated it from Total her. Total different connotation. Yeah, so, mm. so let's talk about the language we use, and what do we do when we accidentally offend people? Because yeah. it happens all the time. It happens all the time. Yeah. So, so you first have to begin by de-dramatizing this, mm-hmm. by just acknowledging that, like suffering, this is bound to happen to us all. Mm. So I'm I'm a big proponent of the idea of uh, of disagreement as spiritual practice. One of my favorite words is a Sanskrit term called sadhana, which means a means of accomplishing something or like a path that leads to self-realization. That um, there's a book by um, Anthony DeMello. Uh, on spiritual exercises, and he talks about how anything can be transformed into sadhana if you engage it with an open heart. So driving down the highway, making a meal, having a conversation with a friend, this can be a kind of spiritual practice. It can expand your vision of possibility, lead to greater levels of self-awareness. I think disagreement can be transformed into a uh, into a form of sadhana if you engage it with an open heart. So when when you say something and you mean well, and another person is offended by that, you can look at that as an attack, you can look at that as someone picking on you, but then you can look at it as an invitation, right? As an invitation to increase your level of personal power, to increase your capacity for empathy, thus making it a spiritual practice. And you can say, hey, what is it that I want here out of this situation? And how might my ability to learn from the way I'm showing up in another person's world increase my ability to to create that result? So let's say, we're sitting here and I go, um, hey, Ryan, can you pass me the coffee? And Ryan just breaks down and starts crying. He's like, TK, you're always telling me what to do, man. I'm just <laughs> tired of being told what to do. Now, in my mind, I might think, man, this guy's being so dramatic, yeah. so oversensitive, right? And, and I can stop at that level of consciousness and get to feel like I'm a superior person. But then I can stop and I can say, well, is that what I want? Mm-hmm. Right? Like, I want the coffee. And if that's the way I'm showing up in his world, it results in me not getting the coffee. Right, but it right. also it also results in a negative effect with someone you care about. Exactly, and and, and, and I don't want that. That, that. That's the important thing. It's mm. it's not it's not some external moral code that I have to mindlessly submit myself to in the name of being a do-gooder. It's not like, well, this is the right thing to do, and to be a good boy, you must treat him respectfully. No, like, let's be real about it. I want the coffee, and I want to get along with him, Mm -hmm. right? So it benefits me, right? So I need to step back, and I need to say, hey, it's not about right versus wrong. It's about works versus doesn't work. And what I just did, it didn't work. Doesn't matter if I think it's right. It didn't work. Mm. How, How can I take this experience where I'm something about the way I'm talking to him is being reflected back to me and how can I learn from that so I can rearrange the possibilities of this moment to produce a different result. That's the kind of mindset that gives you options, that gives you personal power and that allows you to sort of sidestep the sense of being a victim that often comes from people saying, I'm offended by you, Mm. you know? What I hear him saying is, 
it's a lot about it's about presence when you talk about disagreements or even arguments as a spiritual practice the thing that that i i'm hearing about this is like i'm going to step back and actually be present i'm going to listen and i think quite often this is where (laughs) the problem isn't that we're not talking we did this event with colin wright the the other day you were there in in the audience and um there was a person who said yeah i just feel like we're not talking anymore Mm. and i don't think that's the problem i think we're talking more than ever Mm. i think we're not listening and thus we are not communicating and being present means talking when appropriate providing solutions when appropriate and i say when appropriate there because sometimes a solution is not the solution yeah yeah i've i've realized this in my own relationship with both ryan but especially with bex when Ryan comes to me, he often does want a solution. When I come to Ryan, I want a solution. Sure, that's how we are. We're we're, we're problem solvers. But sometimes the solution is just to listen, and 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 not providing. Well, here are the seven steps you need to do. And they're like, no, 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 no. I just I need someone to offload this on, and the solution right now is simply to not provide me with your seven step plan to get out of this. Yeah but just sit in this with me for a moment. The solution is to help help the person by understanding the person. Yeah. yeah. And, and, when, and when you try to be the solution person, and she says, I don't want your solution right now, I just want you to listen, you don't need to go, well, I'm just trying to help out, right? Like, like okay, like that's, that's helpful to know. That's helpful to know. And it doesn't mean you need to be a doormat. You need to be some subservient little lackey who apologizes for everything. Oh, I'm so sorry for not being able to read your mind. No, you don't have to be sorry about anything. Yeah. You have new information. Like, thank you. That helps to know. That help that helps to know. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. Dude, it's, I'm like thinking of my own relationships. And like my worst relationships is with my parents. And it's for two completely different reasons. And it's like I'm trying to apply this advice to how I could take a better approach with my dad or with my mom. But I don't like with my dad, it's specifically like, I don't know, TK, what do you think, man? Like, so yeah, my, so my dad, uh, is very firm in, you know, in, in his biblical beliefs and the communication we had up until about a year, year and a half ago, it was always, Hey, you're living with a girl. You're not married. Here's scriptural reasoning to show that I can't be a good father to you because uh, because of your living situation, basically. So now, does it say he's not allowed? I'm just trying to clarify. So sure, I yeah, understand. Yeah, yeah. Is this, does the scripture that he's not allowed to be, or he is not able to be? There is a specific scripture that says something like, uh, "You shouldn't even be having meals with immoral people." I mean, it's something very that it's very literal that he takes. Sure. So, uh, long story short, he's like, "Look, if you want to talk to me, uh, you can't." Unless it's an, an absolute emergency, and I'll tell you, like there, we've had one oh, emergency. Can't talk to you at all, right? Pretty much. Okay, gotcha. I mean, and, and when we well, <clears throat> when we do talk, it's it's this constant judgment on the way I live my life. Mm. So uh, uh, th- there was an emergency, and he was totally there. Like it was, it was, it was great. Like um, I wish we had a lot of emergencies so he could treat me that way. When, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is funny because like that actually would throw some people into a victim role, right? Like always creating emergencies. But, yeah. but oh I, man, that's good. But because I, be, when you think about that, like 
it on a small scale, not on the big stuff, mm-hmm. but like we create these imaginary emergencies. This is what yeah. Rob Bell says most emergencies aren't. Mm-hmm. And, and and we create these little moments of panic. You know people mm-hmm. who constantly have an emergency and it often feels like it's not their fault. But they're the common denominator of among all the uh, myriad emergencies that yeah. are that are occurring constantly in their lives. And you're like, well, it might not be directly, or this one isn't directly your fault. But if there's an emergency, literally every other day, then there, there's a problem. There's an underlying problem. Yeah. yeah. So with my, I'm trying to look. I'm trying to look at like that relationship to be like, okay, Dad, like, what do I need to do for us to have? you know, a decent line of communication open. But his answer is, uh, you need to get married. You need to go to, you know, Kingdom Hall, is, you know, every, two times a week. You need to go out door to door, knocking on people's doors. Like, this is what you have to do, do in order for me to uh, open a line of communication with you. Have you have to change your beliefs so, to change the person who you are. Right, so I basically have an ultimatum yeah. on whether or not to do this or, or not. Okay, so I get if you were to ask him, what do I have to do to have a relationship with you? He's going to give you the, the list of rules. Yeah. What would happen if you just called him up and said, hey, Dad, how's it going? What would he do? Uh, he, would, he'd, he would rush me off the phone. Yeah. Like yeah. I mean, because I, I mean, ultimately, what ended up happening is. Should we do it right now on the podcast? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. what, what ultimately ended up happening was um, he, would rush, he, he would rush me off the phone. And then I confronted him like, dude, what is going on? And he's like, well, you know, I have to avoid as much contact with you as possible. So um, I tried to have these open-ended conversations, not talking about religion or anything. Hey, dad, how's it going? Oh, good, good. Oh, I'm busy, man. I mean, it's like it is this um, – he, he doesn't want to – he really does want to avoid all contact with me as gotcha. much as possible. All right, so I get that. Now, before we even delve into how we deal with it, what's your why? What do you want to achieve? Uh, Man, I want to – I don't know, man. I just want to have a uh, a relationship with my dad where we can talk about how our days went. We could talk about how our years went. We could talk about you know the projects we got going on around the house. We could go on. Yeah. This is what what started it is. I was like, Dad, I want to take you on a trip, man. Yeah. He's a scuba diver. I'm like, Let's yeah. go to the Great Barrier Reef, man. Yeah. Let's go to Alaska. Let's do something cool. Yeah. Oh, I can't do that, son. You're you're so immoral. I shouldn't even have a meal. I shouldn't even be eating a meal with you. And the last time I saw him, even during that emergency, would not sit down and have a meal. Like that is how literal it is. Yeah. Now it sounds to me like what you just said there. We, uh, TK asked you about the why, mm-hmm. and you listed a bunch of whats that are really important whats. Mm-hmm. But what is? Do you, do you know what the why is behind that? Because I, I don't. I, I don't. don't. Know. I, I was trying to give examples of what uh, to maybe get behind the why, but I mean why just. Because I want to have a good relationship with my dad. I mean, that's what it comes down to, really. Yeah, yeah. L- like, not just a good relationship, but like a flourishing relationship. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So, so yeah. <laughs> so, so, so first, I, I think it helps to kind of contextualize these challenges by connecting them to that universal thread that we all belong to. Um, we all have people that we love and want to have deeper relationships with or better friendships with who for whatever reason, good reasons or bad, um, may not feel the same way Mm -hmm. or may not have the same level of availability or passion or whatever. And Mm -hmm. that's something that we all have to deal with in different ways, right? Mm -hmm. Um, When it comes to your father though, it sounds like you want him to know that you love him, that you care about him, Mm -hmm. and you want to see what's possible when you build a connection with him based on that. Is yeah. that is that fair? Yeah, that's fair, yeah. absolutely. What do you think would happen if, I know if you called him, 
mm-hmm. he'd rush you off the phone. Right. And, and, and that's clearly a context where he's able to do that and where it would seem appropriate to him. Mm-hmm. What if you wrote him a letter and you talked about some of the things that have been going on with you that you feel passionate about mm-hmm. and you let him know in that letter that you love him and, and now he has space to be with that letter to process that without the pressure of giving a response to you in real time. How, how do you think that would impact him? Yeah, I, I, I don't know how that would impact him. But that what I, the reason why I even brought this up is because I'm looking for different approaches. Because yeah, yeah. right now, actually, if I called him right now, he probably wouldn't answer. Like that's, right. he just sends me the voicemail. But, but no, I, but this, this is a great idea. Um, now, we, I, don't, I don't set that forth, by the way, as, as a prescription that comes with a guarantee. Sure. Um, He's I, not going to all call me up and be like, oh, son. Right, right, right. I didn't realize this whole time. Right. Yeah, but, but I, I, think the, I think the best that we can aim for in, in any area of our lives where you want to improve is the discovery of something new that mm-hmm. seems worth trying, right? We don't have to require ourselves to have faith in a positive outcome ahead of time. Mm-hmm. We just have to be willing to try something new. You yeah. know, uh, it's, it's like the old saying, if you want something you've never had, you've got to be willing to do something you've never done. And one of the things I'm hearing about these conversations with your father is that he's never in a position where he gets to engage you with a degree of space that allows him to process your attempts to interact with him in a manner that's comfortable for him. Mm-hmm. And it may, it, it could be worth trying to send him a letter, yeah. let him know, be, because now he would be free to read that and cry without losing without compromising his brand. Yeah. Whereas he might not do that on the phone with yeah. you. You know, I mean, he's trying to rush off for a reason because there are emotions, feelings, elements of resistance rising up in him that he's trying to put an end to. Mm-hmm. You know, when he's not with you on the phone, he gets to be present with that in in in, in, in a way that's um in a way that's not distracting. I like that. Yeah. I mean, I mean, really, again, like I'm just looking for yeah. different approaches, and that is a good approach because the letters I've re- or emails I should say I sent him, phone calls we've had, texts I've had with him, it's just they're, they're defensive, man. It's like me going at him because it's like because he comes at me, yeah. so then I'm, I'm in that war yeah. with this disagreement. So then I got to go at him, yeah. and not once have I ever ever like unloaded on him and then felt good. When is it appropriate yeah. though? And if you're watching this on YouTube, I'm bleeding apparently. Um, <laughs> these disagreements. When is it? Bleed. When is it appropriate to stop talking to someone? Is that where you're going with no, that? No, I was um, not. I, uh, um, oh, that's a good question, though. Yeah, we'll, we'll um, go to that next. What was your yeah, question? <laughs> when When is it appropriate to to eventually? Because what you were saying, you lash out each time. What language do you, did you use? You yeah, become I just, defensive. Right, I I attack him uh-huh. because I feel attacked. And so, when is it appropriate to do that? And when is it? When is it not? You know, from this conversation we've had, uh, the regular podcast and this in this maximal episode, like I don't think it's ever appropriate to attack. I mean, really, like when 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 does when does uh, attacking someone verbally? When does that ever result in something meaningful? Only if it's self defense, really. I think well, that's physical attack. Though. Well, no, I mean, there, there, you, you can, you can attack someone. Oh, I see what you're saying. Uh, verbally like, to uh, prevent the like, physical. Get the heck out of my face. Yeah, to yeah, prevent per, to prevent the physical escalation. Okay, you can be assertive without attacking, right? Yeah. Like you can carry yourself with self respect and and a bit of dignity without. Uh, making someone else feel small in yeah. the process, right? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so when is it appropriate to like cut communication off with someone? Like when would you say? So I think this is a goal-oriented question. And, and there's a reason why multiple times here I made it a point that this is not based on some objective list of do's and don'ts without mm-hmm. a point of reference because it's easy to mishear some of this stuff mm-hmm. as as saying, 
oh, just be a harmless little nice person who never makes anyone uncomfortable. And I don't believe that at all. No. I believe there's a time and a place mm-hmm. to to disregard how comfortable other people are with your truth. Okay, mm-hmm. I believe there's a time and a place. But I, but I believe this is a goal-oriented matter. Um, if you want a relationship with someone, mm-hmm. right, um, then you have to ask yourself, what are the costs? What are the costs? Um, that are involved with me creating that result, and am I willing to pay the pay those costs? Yeah, because so what does that relationship look like? Yeah, because relationship isn't a nebulous thing where you're like, I want this person in my life, even though it's it's awful. Yeah. What you're saying is, what is that ideal? Not perfect, but ideal relationship look like, and then what are the costs of that ideal relationship? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I can guarantee you, for all the relationships that we're in. We put up with inconveniences because we believe they're worth the cost. And you better believe there's some outsider looking at us do that and thinking to themselves, ha, I never put up with that. Right. And that's okay. That's yeah. okay for them, yeah. right? But we've made up our minds mm-hmm. for the for the relationships that we have with our customers or our significant others or our friends that based on my goals, based on my values, this is something I'm willing to deal with. When I worked at an assisted living facility, I worked with older people who had dementia, people in their 80s, 90s, and sometimes these people, not being in their right mind, would say some really cruel things. I mean, sometimes, uh, I, I, you know, me, me and this other black guy used to work there together. We were only two, two brothers there, and we used to joke around sometimes, like, man, I, I think they think that we're living back in the day, in the, in the time before time, <laughs> oh, the way they're man. talking to us, right? Oh, but, man. But, but I didn't respond to them in the way that I might respond to a man on the street. Right, because mm-hmm. I contextual. because it, it was contextual, man. It, it was contextual, and I was willing to put up with something coming from them because of the love that I had for them, because of the understanding I had of where they were, because of the empathy and so forth. And so you have to do the same with relationships. You know that you have the right at any point to walk away from your dad and say, "Screw that guy, man." No, I think most mm-hmm. of us don't know that, and I think that's one of the. I think the, he knows that. He, <laughs> yeah. I, I know that Ryan yeah. knows that, but if people are listening to this at home yeah. or on the treadmill or in their car or while walking the dog, uh, they may think, "Well, it's actually Ryan. You you had mentioned this, and I think it's probably worth bringing up because TK can shed some light on it as well." You had a family member who said, "You know, the thing I like about." Uh, you Ryan is that we're family so I don't have to treat you as good as I would treat uh, my friends. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean it's it's uh that specific yeah. instance it was yeah, it was one family member talking to another family member and they were they had made that statement and uh I was like that's that's crazy and the family member looks at me they're like why is that crazy? Like we're family, we're family. And I'm like, yeah, but I got friends that treat me better than the way that you treat me or the way that you treat other family members. Well, that doesn't matter, man. They're friends and we're family. I'm like, yeah, don't you think that means that you should treat me better than what my friends treat me? And uh, yeah, I I think it is a problem when some people do allow themselves to be abused Mm. just because they're in love with someone. They don't like them, but they're in love with them. Or because they're a family member. Like we find these emotional uh, anchors. I don't don't know what you would put these emotional connections that that basically... um, help us absolve the other person of their really, really bad behavior. And, and I mean, with my dad, it's like the reason why we, I, we stopped talking is uh, mainly because anytime we had communication, it was always, a ju- I never felt good about our conversations. It was always a put down. It was always some kind of judgment, some, some, some kind of, you know, guidance. Like it was never, it was never a conversation as much as it was like, yeah. Hey, just as a reminder, you're a really shitty son. That's how it felt at least, you know? So, I mean, and that's, so that's where I drew the line. I'm like, you know what? Like I, I'm not, I don't 
I, I do not put energy or time into relationships that tear me down. And, and if I could say one more thing on that, yeah, too, yeah. I, I think you made the right decision in that you distance yourself from a context where you have to experience what feels like abuse, mm-hmm. right? Like it all starts with mental health. It doesn't matter what your techniques are if you can't employ them from a state of inner well being. Um, so I think you did the right thing there. And I think when it comes to him and anyone else, you can't coerce people into being your friend, into changing their beliefs. You have to accept that people are who they choose to be. Mm-hmm. And within that context, the most you can do is let them know you love them and let them know you're available, and then they have to make their choice. Mm-hmm. And that is heartbreaking. Yeah. That is heartbreaking, but that that also is is the essence of human relationships, the capacity yeah. to be heartbroken for the sake of love. And you, you know? don't wanna yeah. compromise your values to placate that person either. Absolutely. And I think that's quite often what we do. I know it's what I did in my, in my first marriage where I, I I bent my values so much that they were essentially breaking, yeah. right? And, and in order to accommodate someone else. And the tricky part about that is she was doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. And, and we were both uh, sort of uh, playing this sort of game of, of emotional twister where it, it, and ultimately it didn't, it didn't work out because I was trying to placate, she was trying to placate. And so placation is not the answer. Standing mm-hmm. firm in your values also doesn't mean the, the attacking or the, the fighting back. Sometimes it just means listening and maybe asking some, some better questions along the way. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to try that, man. I'm going to write him a letter. Yeah. Because I, I do totally agree with loving someone from a distance. And uh, for anyone out there listening to this right now, if you are in one of those relationships, I mean, you can still love someone from a distance. But yep. I guess like when I think about an example at its, you know, of this, uh, of, a, of an abusive relationship at its terminus, it's like a woman who is constantly getting beat by their significant other. I mean, how many times have, have we, you know, seen that? Like it, it whether it's yeah. on cops <laughs> or whether it's on, you know, in some lifetime drama, whatever it is, like there, there's real situations out there like that. And I think what people get caught up in is they feel like they'll never be able to love someone as much as they love this person that is abusing them. And for anyone listening out there, if you're in that situation, like I promise you, like they're a, every minute you spend with an abusive person, every minute you put into that abusive relationship, you're wasting time that you could be putting into a really, really meaningful relationship. And I promise you that there are 7 billion people in the world. There's someone out there who's going to love you just as much, if not more, they're going to treat you well. Yeah. There, there, there are plenty of people with whom we can spend our time, our attention, all of our resources. And so we need to choose them wisely. You know, we often hear that you're the aggregate of the five closest people to you. And that can be true in business. It can be true in your personal life. It, can, it, it's, it essentially just means that the community that you have made yourself a part of geographically, but, but now it's not restrained or constrained by geography. We have the internet. And we have the ability to move as well. And I don't just mean move across the country. It might mean, oh, I live in Kettering, Ohio, and I'd really like to be in Centerville, Ohio. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'll just, you know, I'll start hanging out there more mm-hmm. uh, to find, you know, my tribe or the people that uh, I aspire to be more like, to uh, the people I aspire to have in my life. And then asking that question, how do I add value to their lives? Because you can't just show up and say, all right, bless me with your knowledge and wisdom and, and good graces. Now, how do you show up and, and serve those people mm-hmm. is, uh, is an important question to ask first before expecting to get anything from that community. 
there's an important minimalism analogy as well. So when when you think about how our life can be filled with things, right? Sometimes you got to get rid of those things and create space before you can see what's possible, right? Mm. You you can't wait to see what's possible first and then create space. You've got to create space first and that space creates the that space is what makes room for the possibility. So when it comes Absolutely. to relationships for instance, don't wait for someone to come along who loves you like you should be loved before you extricate yourself from abusive, toxic relationships, yes. right? You got you you got to you got to make some room for that first. Mm. You got to you got to create space for that possibility by taking yourself out of those situations and and exploring what's possible because there are some possibilities that just won't actualize until you first make yourself available for them. But if you're too busy being with those who don't appreciate you, you'll you'll, you'll never be flexible enough for those who will. There's a saying I love, go where you're celebrated, not where you're tolerated. Mm. But sometimes you gotta extricate yourself from what's tolerated first before you can uh, see the other stuff. So anyway, it's yeah. a yeah. great point, man. Sometimes we talk about tolerance and I think tolerance is a pretty weak virtue. It, it mm-hmm. and it, it's actually required in understanding someone. It's, yes. it's a good first step. It's required in traffic in LA. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> so so uh, we have this acronym we use, TARA, T-A-R-A. Okay. It's a, the process toward better understanding someone. So the first T is tolerance. Very weak, weak virtue, but it is the first step in understanding someone. You have to tolerate their point of view, but you don't want to stay there long because if you just tolerate someone, that it doesn't feel very good, right? So the, the next letter in the acronym is accept. You know, you're in traffic in LA. I accept the fact that I'm in traffic. I'm going to maybe uh, leave twice as... Uh, so for example, I had to go pick backs up at the airport yesterday and I gave myself two hours for what is typically a 30-minute drive mm. because of the time of day. And I still ended up not getting there on time <laughs> because of an accident on La Cienega. But I, I, I gave myself an amount of time and I accepted the fact that, okay, yeah. I'm not going to get there in half an hour. You have to accept that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next step in is the R in the Terra acronym. It's respect. You want to respect someone else for their point of view, right? Mm-hmm. So we might disagree but I respect that that is currently yeah. your point of view based on all of the events and circumstances that led up to this moment in your life. Mm-hmm. I can respect that that is your POV. Even right. even in traffic, man, like this morning, someone, they turned right on red and like just cut me off. Mm-hmm. And I was like, for, an, for a second, I was like really angry. And then I was like, you know what? Like they went to get somewhere just as badly as I want to get somewhere. <laughs> we both need to get somewhere. And I respect the fact that they're in LA traffic and they're trying to navigate through this crazy mess also. Right, because what's the alternative? To disrespect them, right? right? And, yeah. and that's escalating a situation unnecessarily. Absolutely. And I think in our minds, especially when we're, when we're driving, you know, because you're in a death machine, essentially, yeah. your, your cortisol is heightened and you feel like, I need to respond to this. I need to disrespect. But if you pause, if you become present, as you were talking about disagreement as a spiritual practice, if you become present in the moment, oh, okay, like they need to get where they're going. Maybe they, maybe they have an emergency. Maybe they're headed to the hospital. Yeah, or, or, or at least with certainty they have a story, right? Because when I cut you off, I'm running late and I'm going to lose my job if I don't make it there. Uh-huh. When you cut me off, you woke up this morning and decided to be a jerk who ruins my day, <laughs> right? right? <laughs> like, like, like we, we, we leave room for stories when it comes to how we judge ourselves and we treat other people as storyless robots who have nothing going on. Yeah. They don't have a narrative going on. And that, so, yeah. that narrative leads to the last letter in this acronym here. So T-A-R-A, tolerate, 
accept, respect, and the final one is the hardest one to get to is appreciate. Mm. And having that narrative, I can appreciate that because I've gone through that before. Mm-hmm. It, it, there's a level of empathy, but uh, more important, there's a level of what Ryan talked about earlier, compassion. If you want to support someone, you want to better understand them, have compassion for their circumstance. And that's not easy. Yeah. Appreciating them because maybe they're all, you, you're living with someone and they're a hoarder and you're like, ah, I can't. How do I get to that level of, uh, of appreciating them? We learned this from our friend Patrick Roan who lives in... Uh, Minnesota. I think it was podcast episode eighty-five. It's called Nonline. And wow, you remember the numbers like that, <laughs> dude? He's like my human Google. He's always like, "Don't call me, just Google it." I'm like, "But it's so much easier to just call you and ask." <laughs> I, I curate the response with Google. He gets ten answers back when he just wa- he knows I know which one he exactly, wants. Exactly, exactly. Like, yeah, we recorded that in 2016, I believe, <laughs> January 5th. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was uh, it was 2017. So but yeah. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, so Patrick Rohn. Yeah, we, we had this conversation with Patrick Roan uh, uh, when we were just sitting down and having coffee together in Minneapolis, and he helped me understand it because he is a minimalist, mm. but he lives with a wife and a daughter who are, he often jokes that his wife is a hoarder. She's not actually, um, but she has a lot of stuff, a lot of trinkets, and so he has gotten to the point after many years together of not just tolerating her stuff because that would lead to a contentious relationship. He doesn't just accept the fact because it would, if he just tolerated it, it'd feel bad for both of them. If he just accepted it, that's a good next step, yep. but he would feel bad. Now right? he's a doormat. Yeah, he yeah. becomes that doormat. Mm-hmm. He eventually got to the point where he respects that they're different mm-hmm. and ultimately the sort of enlightened point of living with someone is, hey, I can appreciate that those things add value to your life. Mm -hmm. And if I want this relationship to work, I'm either going to have to thrust my beliefs onto, onto this other person, or maybe I can just appreciate where where they're coming from. Now he doesn't have to do that. Mm -hmm. He can say, Hey, I'm going to the courthouse today. We're getting a divorce. Right. That's an option, but it's not the answer for him. And so the other answer is to not use them as a doormat use them to batter them with your own beliefs. No, it's to say, you know what? I appreciate this relationship enough that I'm willing to not just tolerate it, but see the joy that you get from these things. When I think about appreciating traffic, like I can't tell you how many times I'm in, I go through this tolerating to accepting to respecting the other drivers. But then eventually I'm like, you know what, man, I'm in freaking LA. It's 80, like today, like days like today, it's not hard to appreciate sitting in traffic in like a really nice blue sky, 80 degree day. And I get to listen to this podcast yeah. or this music or what, what are the joys that I can find in this? And that, that helps me appreciate it for what it is. Absolutely. That's why it's so important, I think, to, to, re, to remind yourself continually uh, that, you're doing, that you're doing things for yourself. Because it's, it's easy to forget that. It reminds me of the moment in uh, Breaking Bad where after going through all of this struggle, he says, I did this for you. And she says, no, stop saying that. Yeah. I never asked you to do this, right? You did it for you. Like own it, like own it. Like mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't have to work at this job. I don't have to live at this place. I don't have to be in this relationship. Somewhere along the way, I chose to prioritize things that put me in this space. And if I wanna deprioritize those things, I can. I can opt out right now. But if I'm not gonna opt out, 
I need to be honest with myself about what really matters to me and just own it. Simply owning the fact that you're doing the things you do because you believe that they are more valuable than the cost just increases your ability to tolerate and appreciate a lot of the crap that comes along with it. Yes, indeed. Well, we've got some surprise questions here today, TK. Uh Let's see what podcast Sean has queued up for us. Let's hear from Alexander on Twitter. He says, (laughs) uh, is it okay if Dumbledore is gay? I don't know what Dumbledore is, but yes. That's a Harry Potter reference. He is uh, like the grand wizard. For Harry Potter. Josh I, loves sci-fi. I, I, assume, I can't believe you haven't seen Harry Potter, Josh. I assume this is a disagreement that people have is whether or not... And, and, and it's K- a very recent fiery disagreement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so J.K. Rowling recently... Because there, there's some prequels that are happening right now. I forget what the what that series is called with Harry Potter. But anyway, I guess like in one of the prequels... Yeah, Fantastic Beasts or something. Like there's... Dumbledore is coming out as, as gay, basically. Or okay. bi, maybe. Okay. Anyway, but yeah, it's a recent development. J.K. And Rowling. People are disagreeing about this or people, upset about it. Well, or? yeah, but yeah, but you know, yes, it, it's funny though because J.K. Rowling has all has always gotten guff from Christians. So uh, like, uh, you know, okay. not only like is it the wizardry and you know kids using magic and but Christians aren't inherently aren't against gay people. I mean, I no. one of our favorite Again, Christians in the world is is Rob Bell and and you know he's all for it. yeah yeah in yeah. But the, the complexity. Some are, some are not. Yeah, right. there is, some yeah. who profess to be Christians are not against it. Some who profess are. Mm-hmm. And, and, and and there are some on both sides who are like, you don't have the real thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 yeah, I mean, again, think of how many different sects of Christianity there are. Uh-huh. I mean, it's, yeah. So, so yeah, they, but that's where they're, that's where she's getting the, 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 the crap from is. Okay. Yeah. Well, 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 now she's getting it from the other end because um, the Christian thing has been there for some time, but she recently made a statement about you know where, where she came out even more explicitly about Dumbledore's relationship uh, I forget the other is it Grinswald or something like that yeah, Harry Potter yeah. fans are so mad at me for getting the yeah, names wrong yeah, I'm, I'm sorry really. guys um, <laughs> but um, you know you know and she, and she mentioned she talked a little bit about that and, and some people are upset because they feel like whoa you didn't well why didn't you represent that you know you're, you're, you're saying it as a kind of statement after the fact but when we watch the movies and we read your books you're you're kind of hiding it and and you had the opportunity to do something special by making it more obvious more forthcoming mm-hmm. so so that's the objection some some are making so right now she she's got a couple of different camps yeah. who oppose each other who are both opposing her so she's dealing with a disagreement of the uh most interesting kind so so what is what, <clears throat> what what's productive here about what what can, what can she do that is productive with respect because she can't placate both sides. We already we've already figured this out, right? Yeah. And and so what is productive at this point? If you're if you're someone like J.K. who is who is creating something like this, getting I mean an immense amount of criticism and and feedback. To be fair, mm-hmm. uh, what's what's productive at this point? I mean, I, I don't think there's anything she or anyone else in this situation can do other than one to be honest and say, hey. Here's where I'm coming from. Here's what here's what I believe. Here's why I believe it. And here's why I made the choices that I did. I know you might not, I know some people might not accept that, but all I can give you is my answer. I can't give you the answer that you want me to give. I got to give the answer that authentically expresses who I am. And then if she cares about her fans and her followers and it bothers her that 
people are angry at her, at her, at her she can turn this into sadhana and use it as an opportunity to dialogue with her audience and say, I'm not going to argue or contend. I've already explained myself, but I will hear you. Mm. And wherever there may be an opportunity for my future work to be positively impacted by your grievances or your frustrations, I, I, I will do my best to make that happen. Mm. And then just move on accepting, understanding, knowing that for some, even that won't be enough. Yeah, yeah. And, that's, okay. that's a good point because if you try to placate everyone, it's never, ever going to be enough. In fact, you're going to create some distance between you and the people you were initially serving in the first place. If you're going out and placating everyone else, it's sort of on the fringe. It, I think it, it doesn't just dumb down what you're doing. It waters it down in a way that be, it, whatever you were trying to create becomes less effective. Now, Alexander also says... Religion, politics, and eating pineapple on pizza. Now, hey, in fairness, Alexander, like, what are th are these even questions? Like, are you just <laughs> naming words and, and putting question marks behind them? I mean, come on, Alexander. Like, what's the question? Religion? Question mark? Yeah. Like, well, I, I think what Alexander's trying to say is like, how do you talk about these very emotional, yeah. emotionally charged yeah. topics? Yeah. So, when it comes to politics, when it comes to religion, when it comes to eating pineapple on pizza. I mean, some people get emotionally charged by it. I mean, I, that, that's actually, to is, me... Is that a real debate? Well, that's that's the question, right? Because you know there's someone who, that's stupid. Why would anyone put pineapple on pizza? Get the hell out of here with that. Right. But <laughs> that's... you want to be friends with that? I, right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But other people would actually say, I, would, I don't want to be friends with someone who likes pineapple on pizza. Yeah. And... and what a weird stance. And But I think we do a similar thing with religion and politics. As yeah. the, mm. the pineapple on pizza thing illustrates the absurdity sometimes of our disagreements. Yeah. It, it's weird. We the, the percentage of mixed politics households uh, 50 years ago was a majority of households. So a majority of households, a husband and wife, had different politics. You had a Republican husband and Democrat mother or vice versa, mm -hmm. uh, or wife, I should say. Um, and, and now it's like people can't imagine even dating someone who has a different political point of view from them, which is crazy to me because Bex and I have pretty different political points of view. And I thrive on that, not because we, we don't argue about it, but I, a lot of times I listen to what she has to say and it helps sharpen my point of view and often it changes my mind, not 180 degrees, that's not what we're going for, but if I get a five degree shift, I feel good about that. I don't feel like I'm conceding and I had to be right. I feel like, oh, this makes my point of view a little bit more complete by knowing this this information. Yeah, I think when it comes to all these topics, it, it goes back to if you're having these discussions, if you're having these arguments, these disagreements, like you've got to come at it with compassion and you've got to think of it as something other than a battle. And like that is how you're going to navigate through these topics well. And, yeah. and, and you got to be honest with yourself too about knowing what you're willing to live with. So mm. I, I don't think everyone should push themselves to marry someone, for instance, who has a different religion or a different political point of view. Right. I think it's totally cool to say, hey, that's a priority to me. Mm -hmm. You know, when we're raising our children or when we're, you know, doing doing family how we do family, I, I want someone with a, a, a shared set of assumptions about child rearing, about, about religion, about politics and there are certain things i don't want to have to argue about you know and i think that's fair i yeah. think that's appropriate yeah, yeah it's all about what you 
It's preferences. Yeah, but that's what it comes down to. Even if you have the same shared set of uh, of assumptions or or same same preferences, there will be times where they don't completely converge. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or even if you're both, you know, you've uh, we've both voted for Democrats our whole life, and uh, but now the primaries are here, and I think it should be Elizabeth Warren. No, I think it should be. Uh, Pete Buttigieg or whomever, and, and and now you're having these discussions where you're like, oh, there's still, even though we have these these overarching assumptions, there's nuance, no matter how close we are, yeah. a- and or you change along the way. Oh, like one day somebody wakes up and says, I think I might be an anarchist. Oh no, <laughs> <laughs> this isn't what I signed up for. Oh I, man, yeah, man. And I think in well, that that's what was beautiful about like when I you and. Uh, Colin were having lunch with us the other day and we were having discussions and what I really like about both of you, you're both really curious, you're both really honest, you both listen well, but your po- your politics couldn't be more different between the two of you, <laughs> but you wouldn't know it because it is not something that generally comes to the forefront in a way that is like, you don't... You don't wear your politics on your sleeve. You have a set of sort of ideals or maybe even call it an ideology that is well thought out, but it's nuanced enough as well that you don't feel that you need to wear it as a, as a coat of armor to defend you against uh, anyone's onslaught. Yeah, and, and for me, I, I made a decision a long time ago to embody my political beliefs in my actual lifestyle. And I I have, you know, pretty strong convictions about what I think is effective and what I think is not effective. And just like anyone else in life, I go about having an impact on the world in the ways that I believe are effective. And that means I don't spend my time trying to argue with everyone who disagrees with me because I think that's a waste of my time. I mm-hmm. think there are better, more impactful ways to uh, you know, change the world. And I'm, I'm bu- yeah. too busy doing those things. It's funny, like some one of my favorite compliments is when someone comes up to us at an event and they're like, you know, I really like you guys. I agree with about half of what you say. Yeah. And I'm like, that's awesome. Like you are forming opinions on your own. Yeah. You're not just, you're not just, uh, you know, following us blindly. It's, it's, uh, it's nice to have that little bit of an impact. And it's funny cause you, you know, you talk about, you know, how you can kind of better the world or whatever it is. And I feel like when I die, there's going to be, you know, this, this, uh, philosophy that's left behind and I hope someone takes it and, and makes it better somehow. You know, it's not, it's not the end all be all. Yeah, it's adding it's adding to it because yeah, as Ryan and I sometimes discuss, the, the ideas espoused by us, by the minimalists, by other people in the minimalism movement aren't new solutions. They're time tested solutions. You go back to every major world religion, they're talking about living simply. You go back to the Stoics, they talk about it. You go back to Fight Club and Tyler Durden, he's talking yep, about yep, yep. Uh, the uh, simplifying and, and yeah. getting rid of the, the excess. And in doing so, um, we are we're faced with a new problem, and that problem is unabashed consumerism that started somewhere around the 60s and 70s, and really took flight in the 80s and 90s with uh, the unlimited choices of unlimited products being available at an unlimited number, a function unlimited number of stores. And in going through this, what Ryan and I hope to do is present these solutions, but allow people to expound on them, to remix them, to, prov- to provide additional solutions so that we're all providing solutions to help out with these problems. And of course, new problems are going to present themselves as we fix one thing. Yeah. It's just like your car. Eventually, something else is going to break. Now, here's the, the ultimate question. 
Alexander also asks, what's the correct way to put toilet paper on the dispenser? <laughs> However Mariah does it, that's, you know what, like, uh, you know, is it my preference? No, but I appreciate her so much that, you know, whatever she does, man, that's, she's the one changing the toilet paper roll, so she can do it however she wants. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, I mean, I think that's a good theory, and if Bex could change the toilet paper roll, then I wouldn't have problems in my house. <laughs> but I could tell you the incorrect way. Passive-aggressive much, Millie? <laughs> oh, no, 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 her and I have lots of conversations about it. I drag her into the bathroom, and I point mockingly and say, look at that, what is that? What is this empty toilet paper roll? <laughs> and how much toilet paper can you possibly use? Are you just wrapping it around your hand repeatedly? <laughs> I have no idea what's going on in my household. But I can tell you the not correct way to put toilet paper on the toilet paper dispenser is to just leave an empty cardboard toilet paper roll <laughs> carcass. <laughs> oh, man. The, there, we have two bathrooms. Mm. <laughs> and two weeks ago, we had two empty toilet paper rolls at the same exact time. Two weeks ago, he's got this. <laughs> <laughs> You've been holding on to this for two weeks. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> actually, no. I've, I've, uh, I, I say all this to say I've actually formed a detente with it. And I realized that um, I, I say all this in jest. And there was a point where I really did feel like, like I – emotion had an emotional response to this and i blew it out of proportion and i realized like let's step back for a second let's be present and say is this that big of a deal no it's right. not do you know how much bex does for me you talked about convenience and inconvenience in a relationship my relationship with bex is the least convenient relationship i've ever had it's also the best relationship i've ever had yeah. now there is not a direct correlation between the two but but it actually shows you that it is so good that I'm willing to go way out of my way because she is also willing to go literally, physically way out of her way mm. to accommodate the relationship. And sometimes we don't notice something in, in the relationship. And the, the funny thing is she actually does an, a way, 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 way better job than she used to because she with the toilet paper thing. But even if she didn't, even if every time she went to the bathroom, she used an entire roll of toilet paper and left the cardboard carcass there for me to clean up, I would do it happily because our relationship is outstanding. And if that's the cost of a mission, man, that is a really low cost. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and you know, one way of looking at it too, as, as opposed to it just being the cost of admission, it being the necessary condition for pleasure. So, so for instance, like one of the things we know about uh, how the brain processes information is that novelty, continual increases in novelty is a prerequisite for pleasure, which is why you give a child a toy or a video game or you watch a TV show, you're at the peak of your ability to enjoy it. And then you achieve a certain level of familiarity with it, you master it, you, you, you know all the nuances. Now you're bored. You know, you need a new toy, a new video game, a new TV show, a new book. Why is that? Because the brain is saying, I'm not going to let you experience any more pleasure unless you introduce an added layer of complexity. And this is the case for all aspects of life. Like we need complexity. We need new challenges in order to continue experiencing fulfillment, in order to participate in our own evolution. And so just because something is easier 
doesn't necessarily mean it's better. Right. You know, my wife came with me to LA. It would have been so much easier had I come by myself because when it's time to eat, I don't have to think about her dietary preferences, right? When I make a decision, I only have to consult the committee of one. It would be so much easier, but it wouldn't by any means be better, right? right? You know, that, that complexity that comes from having to think about something other than my own impulses and preferences in the moment is exactly what makes human flourishing and the deepest levels of fulfillment possible. The problem we run into right now is there's too much complexity quite often. And so that's why people turn to minimalism or simplifying. So the, the Latin root of the word complex is complex, too complex, these things. So if you have a rope, yeah. it's, it's just a bunch of strings that are complected together, right? And the problem is now we're tangled by complexity. If you put too many strings, you just throw a bunch of strings there. It's not going to build a rope. It's just going to build a, a a net that you get caught in you're we're caught in this web of complexity and so the the question is what is the appropriate amount of complexity that is how you simplify you simplify down to, to simplify the, the the latin root of that is simplex a single one right you get down to the essence the, the other word might be integrity the the thing as a whole the yeah. integer how do we get down to the, the the common denominator. For you, it's like being here with my wife is the appropriate thing. Now, traveling here with an entourage of 30, you bring the whole Praxis team with you or whatever, like that yeah. might be too much complexity for you to do the whole yeah. trip to LA. And so what is the appropriate amount of complexity? Yeah. And we simplify down to that level. Like now, Alexander also asked, have you ever helped pay for an abortion? Um, no, not that I'm aware of, but... Uh, here, here, this is actually a, a question that I found. Uh, this is one of those sup, superheated, supercharged conversations that mm -hmm. people have. That it's not even a conversation anymore. It's a shouting match. Uh, often, quite literally, gets physical. Right. And it's one of those things I think can only be discussed in jokes because otherwise, it is so heated you can't touch it. Louis C.K. in his last special before all of the the, the craziness happened with his own uh, situation, he talked about this subject in the only way he actually did the, the T.K. Coleman thing where he he presented both sides of the argument almost simultaneously where he was like, of course I think, and I'm going to butcher this, so go check out his special if, if you want to support him, but, um, or I guess you can just watch it. I think it's on Netflix. It's not necessarily supporting him directly, but anyway, um, if you feel strongly about not supporting him, um, the thing that he was talking about is, hey, yeah, of course I believe in a woman's right to choose, but also realize if you have an abortion, you're choosing murder. And like, it's, it's this really complex thing that we, you, I, I don't feel comfortable talking about here even because I think all three of us probably have our own points of view and they might be relatively similar. I don't know. And, and for me, I, it's not something that comes up in my everyday life, but also realize that some people have a really strong preference. Preferences. This is some, not even preference, but, but opinion on this. And it's something that dictates their, almost their everyday life. And he talked about it in a way that was sort of the, remember when we had Andrew Schultz in here and he was talking about it is and it isn't, and mm. we get comfortable only with binary, right. it, where it's like, I'm pro-life and I'm pro-choice, but maybe I'm both. Mm. And it is and it isn't. Mm -hmm. And I have to be comfortable with that dichotomy almost, where I'm, yeah. yes, of course I believe in a woman's right to choose, 
but also I, I don't kid myself and say, well, that isn't going to become a baby also. Mm-hmm. And what is the answer to that? I don't know. It's fairly complex. In fact, it's too complex for me to even have a, a really strong opinion about. I'll tell you how we get to the answer, though. We get to the answer by having you the conversation. Bible right now. <laughs> <laughs> no. We get to the answer by calling Ryan's dad. Yeah, <laughs> no. here's, the, here's the answer from Ryan's dad, Mister Nicodemus, on the line. Yeah. <laughs> no, we we get to the answer by by embracing the conversations that are difficult to have. So. I, I I actually don't buy into the belief that there are things you can't say, you know, and, 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 and it's a very easy way for us to make victims of ourselves when we go around saying, you know, you can't you can't say what you really think nowadays because everyone's so easily offended. Oh, you can say whatever you want to say. You know, th- th- yeah, there, there's no muzzle stopping you from opening opening your mouth. What you really mean is there are consequences for the things I say and I am not willing to pay the price of those consequences. And that's a really good constraint to have because it forces you to be honest about the level of investment you're willing to make in your own opinions. Mm-hmm. And that's a good, a good barometer for how important that is to you. Mm-hmm. Because I, I don't wanna know what you think. I wanna know what you're willing to invest in because what you're willing to invest in tells me what your priorities are. What, you're, what you think only tells me what your preferences are in the abstract. Mm-hmm. But I want to know what you're willing to endure some pain for or sacrifice for. So you can say whatever you want to say. And, and when you have to deal with the fact that words have consequences, they affect the people that I love, they affect the way people see me, then that forces you to do two things. It makes you say, all right, is this opinion still worth talking about if I have to do the work necessary to communicate in a nuanced and sophisticated manner? And if the answer to that is no, well, you know how important that opinion really is to you. Um, and by the way, that's okay. Accept that because yeah, we and, can and have okay. these loosely held beliefs that I don't really want to spend any time arguing about that thing. So I'm not willing to talk about it because it's not worth my time. Mm. Yeah, th- this is why I think costs are a great thing. Like it, it's a basic economic fact that when you remove costs, mm-hmm. people make different decisions, right? Like if, if you walked into a grocery store, for instance, and... Um, you know, someone said, you know, hey, all the soda is free for the next 24 hours. Even if you're a person that doesn't drink soda and you usually wouldn't buy it, you might think, oh, let me get it because uh, someone I know might need this later. We think differently when cost is removed, Mm -hmm. but the moment you put cost there and you say nothing's free, in order to get something, you gotta be willing to give up something else. Then we start to prioritize. We say, okay, is this more important than something else that I wanna do with my time and my money? And I think that's a good thing to have when we talk about opinions, especially political Mm -hmm. ones. Otherwise, we'll just get caught up treating all of our beliefs as if they're equally important and we'll make victims of ourselves in all sorts of ways. And I think you just gotta own it. You gotta own what you're willing to pay for, own what's important to you. And for me, something I firmly believe is that every hill is not worth dying on. You know, like mm-hmm. th- there, there are about four or five hills that I'm willing to die on. Uh-huh. I want that to be my legacy. Everything else, yeah, I've, I've got some opinions about the Michael Jordan, LeBron James debate, and I'll tweet about them here and there, but I'm not going to go to war with you on that one because there are some more important things I need to do with my time. Yeah. yeah. You just heard TK subtly argue <laughs> against not having free college. That was beautiful. <laughs> um, all right, let's see. We've got some more surprise questions here. Bridget from Florida. We've got a voicemail from her. How do you continue a relationship with someone who isn't a minimalist when you are a diehard minimalist, when it's very, very important to you? I 
have a boyfriend who loves his books. He loves his <laughs> just his stuff. He had, he didn't have a ton. He's not a hoarder. And a lot of people would say, wow, he hardly has anything. But for me, it drives me nuts just to see things that he never uses and I know he would not ever use but doesn't want to get rid of. Um, and I'm actually going to be moving my city and moving in with him. Um, so we'll have an even... Even more stuff in a, in a small space. I've thought even of not moving, even though I love him. You know, I feel like he is my, the one guy for me. You know, if there has been a one guy, this is the one guy. Um, he's great in every other way. He's wonderful. But how do you do it? <laughs> if you could please just shed some light on that. So I don't think anyone's born a minimalist, or I mean, technically, yeah, you're born in this world naked, but when we talk about minimalism, it's important to define what we're really talking about here. We're talking about being intentional with the resources that we have, right? Mm -hmm. and, and so just if you have few resources, that doesn't make you a minimalist. If you have a lot of resources, it doesn't reduce your potential of becoming a minimalist. Yeah, it doesn't make you not a minimalist. Right. It means that you you are being intentional. You're being deliberate with the few or the abundant resources that you have. And the question then becomes, well, you have this relationship in your life, and it sounds to me like you believe that your significant other, your boyfriend that you're gonna move in with here, is not being intentional, not being deliberate with his resources. And the question then is, like, does he believe that? And, and you can't help someone who's not asking for help here. And, and and so you're in this this interesting situation where you're now forced to pay to use TK's words to pay a cost of being in this relationship with moving in together. Uh, it's either the constant sort of tension or, or discontent that you're going to feel, and you got to find a way around that, mm -hmm. or or the cost is that hey, I'm not willing to have this relationship, and that's a hard decision to make. You know, when I wrote down her question, I just noted here, and I took minimal, minimalism out of it. The question I wrote down is, is how to continue a relationship with someone who doesn't value what I value. Mm. That's really the question here. Mm. It's not about minimalism. Mm -hmm. It's that her boyfriend doesn't seem to value the things that she truly, truly values. Mm -hmm. So Bex doesn't value the toilet paper being replenished. That's not one of her values. Yeah. That is something that uh, you've made the decision that, well, she supports me on so many other things and this relationship is so good, I'm not going to worry about her valuing that. But if she was a hoarder yeah. and she didn't value... Uh, she didn't value your space. Uh -huh. She didn't. She didn't uh, respect your values because that's what it comes down to, right? Mm -hmm. Like if she didn't respect your values, then what kind of relationship would that be? So, uh, so Beth or Bridget, you've got to you've got to be able to ask yourself: like, is your boyfriend going to respect what you value, and vice versa? Are you going to be able to respect what he values? Yeah. But I'm telling you right now, honestly, like if he's because here's the thing: here's the biggest mistake I used to make in relationships. I knew going in to a relationship, there was one thing that was true and I expected things to change throughout the relationship, even though knowing that a certain thing was true and those, well, they didn't last. And I was very deliberate with the, the, the partner that I have now with Mariah, like really being clear on, on us valuing and appreciating the same things. So Bridget, man, if you're, if your boyfriend right now, isn't doing anything to show you that he respects your values. I, I'm, I'm a little concerned that if all of a sudden when you move into to, in with each other, all of a sudden he's going to respect your values. Yeah. I mean, it's, I'm not saying that it's not possible, but 
if if he's saying to you, all right, so he's got he's got you know tubware lid or, or tubwares without lids. He's got you know uh, just this hoard of stuff, and he's like, oh no no, don't worry. When we move in with each other, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna pare down. Mm-hmm. Is it, he needs to start paring down now? Yeah, but also she needs to do a, a good job of accepting the things that are not. It, it's the toilet paper thing. There's going to be a compromise. Not, yeah, not blowing it out of proportion. Like for me, mm-hmm. we have some mismatching stuff in our kitchen and it like it drives me crazy. Why do we have one mason jar that is different from this other mason jar? Mm-hmm. Drives me insane. Unless I step back and I'm present for a moment and say, huh, am I blowing this out of proportion? Yes, I have a different preference here. But how much does this matter in the grand scheme of things? TK? Yeah. Oh, man. So... This is interesting because, you know, like you said, it's not about how much you hold. It's about how you hold it. It's about being deliberate and purpose-driven with what you have, not about checking things off on a list that says, I meet the requirement of having less than 85 books or having less than two bottles of cologne or whatever it may be, right? You can you can have as much or as little stuff as you desire so long as you are not going above or below what brings you joy, right? Uh-huh. Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, so I I think ultimately it's your choice. You have to ask the tough questions like, can he respect my values and can I respect his? But I think there's room for a little work in terms of understanding him and his perspective and where he's coming from because I'm not so sure that his philosophy is incompatible with yours. Now, what I do know from the description is that he seems to be comfortable with more stuff than you. But I don't know why he has that stuff. So for instance, one of the things she said is that he has a lot of books. Mm -hmm. And then she said, I know he doesn't need those books. Uh She didn't quote him, right? She didn't tell us what he thinks about having all those books. So what I wanna know is, why does he have all those books? What are his plans with those books? What does he intend to do with them? But without without interrogating, like if you were to sit down and say, all right, I say, uh, Jeff. All right, Jeff. Why do you have all of these right. books? What do you intend to do with these books? Right, yeah. but approach yeah, yeah, it in a yeah, way yeah, yeah. of understanding. Like, what what is it about these books that you love? Yeah, I, I mean, I mean, if if we're going to be in love, we might as well be curious about the people that we're in love with, ah, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, if we're if we're if, that, Jessica. if we're gonna be if we're gonna be together, let's let's get to know each other, right? So, what's his take on all that stuff, like? rather than trying to downsize his amount of possessions or trying to argue him into less possessions, fewer possessions, or trying to predict, you know, how he's going to change, let's just find out about the brother, right? Mm -hmm. Like, like, what do you want to do with those books, man? Like, like, let's talk about his love for the books because I'm like that. Like, I can do with, without just about anything as long as I have my books. I I am the type of person, I recently went to the, the Huntington Library and Gardens and um, the guy was telling me that they have billions of books there, right? Now, I'm the type of person where I can live in a place where I'm just sleeping on top of books. Books are like falling all over me and I got nothing else. I'd be cool with one outfit for the rest of my life. I'd be cool with eating the same thing every day. I'd be cool with whatever you want to downsize as long as I got my books because those are my friends, man. They make me so happy. I hug my books. Sometimes I lay one by the bed before I go to bed at night because I just feel better if a book is nearby. Uh, I can, If you blindfolded me, I can tell if I'm in a room with books or not, man. Like I'm, I'm just crazy dude when it comes to my books. Um, 
And that's something that my wife appreciates about me. It's something that inspires her. It's something that she finds charming. And I think it's much easier to find someone charming when you know what it is that charms them, right? Yeah. When, when you understand the logic behind that. So that would be my starting place before trying to do any predicting, controlling, arguing, influencing, or walking out. You yeah, know? try to understand where your yeah. partner's coming from. I mean, so Josh, with, with the mismatched stuff in your cabinets, mm -hmm. that, you know, Bex just put stuff in there. Yeah. So, it, I mean, what does it come down to? I mean, does it come down to like either you've, you've got one or two choices. You can draw a barrier and, th and then, and honestly, Bridget needs to find out where her lines are, right? Like she's got to figure out like, okay, I'm happy to have, you know, stuff, but we're not going to have a storage unit or, okay, we'll have a storage unit, but it's only going to be, you know, let's just fill one that's this big. I mean, there's got to be a line drawn somewhere. Yeah. So, uh, so what do you do with the, the mismatch stuff? Change the things I can and accept the things I can't change. <laughs> yeah. Say, say a little serenity prayer along the way. Yeah. What, what if he agrees on, on an amount of Tupperware, but then he's like, but I like the red. She's like, I like the blue. I mean, what are we going to do? You got to pick your battles. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, indeed. We got one, one final question here. Bethany on Twitter asks, minimalism in business. How do you balance working with less as you constantly grow a new business? Now, I thought this was perfect for TK because... Mm. He just moved to South Carolina to grow their business, so to speak, with, with, with Praxis and and have a, a team all together, but also balancing your, your personal life or your well-being. You know, we, we, we see the memes of, of the sort of American work life, the 80, 100 hours a week sort of, uh, I think of a, a lot of attorneys that are this way. They're just constantly working, working, working. And it has become this meme of success. We have to work 100 hours a week. And I know TK works a lot. Mm -hmm. And how do you how do you balance well-being and making sure that you take care of yourself, your family, and the people around you? Yeah, I, I define it as work, work, work. I'm just kidding, man. <laughs> <laughs> GTD. <laughs> yeah. Right, got to get things done, man, all the time. Stay productive. Oh, you guys are going to, like, edit this out. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, it's like, funny. Bleep. We were getting on the elevator. <laughs> <laughs> profanity, yeah. yeah. GTD is like the worst right. uh, profanity. No, I uh, we we were getting on the elevator this morning. He's like, "Well, what are you guys like? What are you guys up to? I don't know what your day is like." I'm like, "I don't really do much, man." Right. Like, um, but the things I work on, I find to be meaningful, mm -hmm. right? And as my health is starting to improve after the six month slump, I uh, I find that I'm getting back to the the more meaningful things. And even whether it's podcasting for us, whether it's writing. Whether it's the the video stuff that we do, it's sort of like the that's the three legged table, and, and that holds up this this thing called the minimalists. Mm -hmm. And we work we, we tend Ryan and I tend to work on one major project a year, working on our second film right now, and then after that we have a, a book. And, and so focusing on one thing has been really important to me because everything else that we do tends to serve that thing. Yeah. So it's one major project, and then. I will say no to anything, even if it seems like a really great opportunity, if it doesn't serve that thing. Ostensibly, though, like you look at the minimalists and you see social media and you see a documentary and you see books and you see a podcast and it does look like we're really, really busy. And it's, it's, uh, I mean, I guess we kind of use the Tim Ferriss four hour work week rule. It's like we really outsource as much as we can. I mean, thank God for Jess Ness because I know I certainly wouldn't do the social media and I, I don't, I don't think, I mean, I think you would still do it, but then like Josh wouldn't be able to, you know, stay as focused on the podcast as he is. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah. How do you deal with all of the, all the, the stuff you got to do with business? You got to pay taxes. You got to be on social media. Well, you don't have to be on social media, but it helps sometimes. 
What do you do with all that? Yeah, man. Oh, man. So uh, this is a tough one. So one of my most controversial beliefs, I've never said this without offending someone or making people give up on me or get really angry at me. Is Just this. because someone's offended doesn't mean they're right, by the way. Right, right. So here's <laughs> one of my most controversial beliefs. I don't think people are stupid. Um, people are factually incorrect sometimes. People are mistaken about what's going to work sometimes. But I don't think at a fundamental level people are stupid. Mm-hmm. When people do things, even things that look stupid outwardly, they are doing them because they are consistent with an internal logic. Okay, there's a narrative that they have about how reality works for them, and they are being consistent with that narrative. So, for instance, if someone buys a BMW that you look at and you say, well, they don't need that. That's a stupid decision. Uh, No, it's not. Um, There's more to the quest for human experience than just backpacking your way through Europe. A BMW is actually an experience. It changes the way some people see you. It changes the way you feel when you ride in that car. And when you understand why this person is doing that, how it fits with their narrative, with the way they're creating their lives, it makes more sense with how you can help them when they want to change. So when it comes to work, I I don't think people are just irrationally waking up and just working too many hours for no reason at all because they're dumb and they haven't seen the right documentary. Mm -hmm. I think people are working really hard because people have results that really matter to them and they don't really know of an alternative way. Mm. Because when I talk to hardworking people, most people out there would love to work less. Right. Mm -hmm. And you can't just be like work less, you know. So my my dad, for instance, growing up, my dad is a a pastor, uh, a a real estate investor, very busy man. Right. And people would always say to my dad, oh, you need to You need to rest more. You need to do less. And and, and he would sometimes say in frustration, "Okay, well, well, who's going to do that for me? And all those people Mm -hmm. who tell him to work less would run away because they don't want to be the one to run those errands. Right. So sometimes life is challenging Mm -hmm. and the process of figuring out how you can reduce work-related stress is an art form that you have to learn. It's like learning how to paint. You don't just wake up in the morning and say, I wanna be Picasso, and now you're good at painting. You don't just wake up in the morning and say, hey, I wanna go from 70 hours a week to 40 hours a week, and now you know how to do that. It is Mm. a form of knowledge, and it's a form of knowledge, by the way, that isn't taught in our traditional educational system, but I won't won't die on that hill today. (laughs) so, so I, that I is think, a hill he will die on. <laughs> it is a hill I will die well, on. Well, dude, go but, back yeah. and listen to our the podcast <laughs> yeah. we, we did with TK about school. Yeah, yeah, you, you can check that out. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. Yeah, it's not taught today. Yeah, but 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 I I believe if if you are someone who's looking to find more work life balance and you're looking to transition into a healthier, more sustainable lifestyle, there is a sense in which you have to be willing to work hard to figure out how to make that a reality for you. Because you live in a world where our economic infrastructure is not set up to make that an easy thing for you to do. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's not an obvious thing. Everyone isn't in a position where they feel comfortable saying, all right, I'm just gonna walk away from that job. Mm. And and I'm just gonna act on faith. Yeah, the easy thing is to continue to work 60, 70, 80, 100 hour weeks. That's the easier thing to do, even though you're working harder and more hours. Even though it's the harder thing to do. Sometimes the harder thing is the only thing we we feel like we know how to do. We feel like it's the only answer. It's like debt, right? So, you know, I I can buy something that I really love for $100 right now, or I can buy something that I kind of love for $1,000 that I don't have to start paying 
for four or five, six years. That sound familiar? Yeah. Um, and that is a more likely choice, right? Because it's easier to do, even though it's harder in the long run. Right. You know? And so yeah. sometimes uh, the decisions we make were, I, I often say that if, if, I, if you hear me say I'm busy, that's really code for me to say my life's out of control. Uh, I've I've let a bunch of other people dictate how my hours are going to be spent. Yeah, yeah. and uh, it doesn't mean that everyone who's busy their life's out of control. But I think sometimes it's important to use the language that is empowering. And quite often, especially in our society, busy has become this badge of honor. Yeah. Uh, oh, what are you up to? Oh, just busy. I hear that and bells go off. I'm like, uh mm. huh. What is what? Do, what do they mean? What do you mean when you say you're busy? Does it mean I'm working on something really meaningful and I'm doing deep work? Maybe, but usually not in today's world. It means, yeah. oh, I'm doing a bunch of things that ape the form of productivity. I'm checking email 17 times a day. I'm looking at my smartphone 160 times a day. Mm-hmm. I'm uh, I'm putting my phone on the table during meals. I'm I'm constantly interrupted by everyone else's busyness. Yeah. All right, so, so let me say something about, about the business side that this person was asking about. You have to measure for yourself and teacher employees, teammates how to do it. You've gotta measure productivity in terms of value creation. Right. What, one of the flaws of having a system where you say, we work X amount of hours, is that you actually teach people to be unaccountable. You teach them to be inefficient and poorly self-managed because the, the moment I can fool myself into thinking that by being physically present at the computer or in the building for 12 hours, mm-hmm. you know, makes me a hard worker. Now, now I lose the sense of, of measuring, well, how much of that actually resulted in making people better? How much of that actually resulted in improving the product that we're in the business of delivering? And so something that we emphasize a lot at Praxis is, hey, if you're working 14 hours a day, that might mean that you're poorly Mm self-managed. That might mean that you're not keeping track of your time and you're waiting really late to start your day so that you end up up working till two in the morning and now you're stressed or you're, you're doing a lot of things wrong. So I know we laughed about David Allen's book, Getting Things Done. But but one of the things about that book is it's not a book on more 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 more. Mm-hmm. It's really a book on self management. Right, but um, it's become a meme of like it's become a meme it, yeah. where it's like it, it, don't it, think about it, just get things done. Ryan, I had a boss yeah. who would like say two phrases that we constantly joke with each other now. We t- will text them to each other occasionally. Make it happen. Make it happen. <laughs> no matter what, like, essentially what he was saying is. Uh, go, Walk all the way up to the line of immorality without crossing it. <laughs> right. Walk up uh, all the way up to the line of being unethical without crossing it. And if you cross it a little bit, he would turn a blind eye to it. Sure. Make it happen. Make it happen. Yeah. Make yeah. it happen. Right. And the other thing was nobody walks. Right. Because uh, well, we were in yeah. customer service, customer sales. Yeah. And so, like, do what again, this was another way to say make it happen. You needed some yeah. variety. Yeah. And nobody walks means, hey, you're going to make that sale. Do something, that it, but it was it was a way for him to remove responsibility. Like, of course, I don't mean do something unethical, but if it's a little unethical, right? Yeah, okay. he really meant like do something. If you do something unethical, I better not find out about it. Exactly. Right. It was the plausible yeah. deniability yeah. sort of thing. And here's the problem with binary thinking: when people hear that, it leads some people to say, "Well, that's the nature of my job, and my boss is like that, so I can't do the whole." you know, you know, work-life balance thing mm-hmm. because I'm gonna get fired, okay? Um, and I, I think it take, this is why I emphasize the part about how it takes time to create an exit plan. 
it's an art form. Oh, yeah. You know, if you're at a job like that, it may very well be the case. You can't just quit that, your job and start a blog. Yeah, right. You can't just do it, right? <laughs> like, like, you're not, you're not going to replace that income. So, right. unfortunately, you may have to be there for some time. Yep. But you can start creating an exit plan now. And, yes. and, it, and it, you may not create it as fast as you want to create it. But that's something that you can do. And I think that element of realism, bringing respect for this as an art form is necessary because we hear a lot of stories. We, we, we kind of we, we kind of have like a Hollywood element to this kind of stuff. You know, like you hear the story about, here's a young actor who moved to Los Angeles, walked through a mall, and someone said, you got the look, kid. And next year, they right. won an Academy Award. It actually <laughs> doesn't happen like that, right? No. That's the story that sells the magazine. The reality is that person was here for X amount of years. They went to like a thousand auditions. You know, like they had a whole bunch of issues uh -huh. before they got there. Right. In a similar way, you know, we tell a lot of stories about someone who like went to work one day and they felt like they were selling their soul and they were like enough and they just walked out and then they just yeah. travel the world and they discovered meaning overnight and usually there's a thought process that that underlies that the person who quit that day had been wrestling with this for a while and figuring out how they're going to go about it and putting their game plan together and that just takes time it's funny because the, the uh, like planning in itself you can get lost in planning yeah. so like that you know i just want to warn against that too it's like you do need a plan to leave but planning is just planning planning is not taking action so you got to take action yeah. on that plan i just thought of a great book title the art of planning <laughs> <laughs> Patent pending. The, the OCD folks like me. Get things like, planned. I, I really GTP. <laughs> yeah. plan. You really the OCD and you what? You really want that what? Well, I was at the OCD. Uh, I'm part of the OCD contingent, and and we would definitely want that book. Yeah, uh, yeah. The art of planning. Yeah. You know, I personally like. It's funny you mentioned the BMW versus like backtracking or, or backpacking across Europe. Like I'm, if, if you look at me and Ryan, like I would clearly want the BMW before I would want to back pack across Europe right. and Ryan would yeah. much rather backpack across Europe yeah. and the thing is I don't want to do either I, I'd rather not have the BMW <laughs> but if you like thrust them upon me right. you have to have one of these I'm like I mean I guess I'll take the BMW because I sure as hell don't want to backpack but, but we, that yeah. sounds we like tend hell. to approach these with the bias though like if yeah. you say backpacking through Europe driving in a BMW we define one That's as an meaningful this one is like uh, solipsistic yep right. it, it, this is experience uh -huh. and this is materialism and actually, there's a materialistic element to both of these, absolutely. And 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 there's a, an experience-based element to both of Potentially. them. Potentially, yeah. that's 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 what we need to think about. Like, what is some things augment our experience? Other things get in the way of our experience. And as a minimalist, I want to, uh, I want to have the things in my life that augment, amplify, enhance my experience of life. For me, it's not a BMW. My Toyota works great. I really enjoy having the Toyota. I don't love it, but I enjoy it. Mm -hmm. And 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 that's great for for me having you know a Lamborghini would just get in the way. It seems impractical. For right, some yeah. people, it enhances their experience. Right. And sure. if you can afford it, you feel like it's the best use of your money, then I have no judgment for I, you. I have a friend who who runs a business and owns such a car for no other reason than that that person's clientele respects this person more mm. as a as a credible hmm. business person. And 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 I know that it works. Uh -huh. I know that it works for them. And and, and so it depends what you mean by works though. Because for me that wouldn't work because uh, if people respected me for my car, then I was signaling it's a it's it's virtue signaling. But yeah, yeah, but what or I mean value signaling. From the standpoint of of 
this person's position as an entrepreneur, uh -huh. the customers look at that BMW uh -huh. and they go, oh, okay, this person's stable. This right. person's got their finances together. They're credible. They're trustworthy. It works for them. Right. Okay. I'm not saying everyone should go out there and buy a BMW to improve their business. I'm, I'm giving an example of how someone can look on the outside to a judgmental eye as being mm -hmm. like, you know, materialistic or things along those lines. And they may actually have a broader strategy. For example, um, many businesses um, use brick and mortar locations because of the appearance of credibility. Right. There are some people who say, oh, you have a building. Uh -huh. Okay, I know where to find you if I need you. I trust you, you're legitimate. It's and a it, loss leader for them. Like uh, yeah. uh, you go up to Sunset, mm -hmm. there's an H&M store there. We're not big fans of H&M here on the podcast, but they probably don't make any money from that because it's the the, the square footage of a retail space on the Sunset yeah. Strip is so yeah. expensive, yeah. but it, it gives them that air of credibility. Like, oh, you have a store on the Sunset Strip? Right. You and, must be doing well. And well, the value they're able to create for many people who who look at that and go, okay, I trust you, is a positive impact. You know, sure. so it, you know it can be part of a broader strategy. Yeah, you got. Yeah. I mean, you got to look at the the opportunity cost. Like, the, the, like your your friend with the Beamer. It's like if he doesn't have that Beamer, what is the opportunity cost? Then it is losing clients. It is uh, well, it's not having a nicer car. So anyone who's stuck in that sixty, seventy, eighty, hundred hour work week, look at things that are on your plate and and start just having the idea. If I re if I remove this, like, what is the opportunity cost if I remove this? Because yeah. I look back at when we were working crazy weeks, and there's like. I could have easily gotten rid of ten hours. Everything easily. Everything yeah. felt like it mattered then because yeah. you're so immersed in it. You're you're in the forest, so all you see are the trees. Mm -hmm. You don't see the forest at all. You just and you're surrounded by everything is urgent. Everything is is an emergency. Everyone else's priorities. We think of them as our own priorities mm -hmm. because you're right in the middle of it. And I love what you just said there, Ryan about what if I remove this from my plate mm -hmm. yeah. in the moment it might seem like a big deal but imagine look look at your life 10 years ago Ryan all the emergencies were there not only did they did they not really matter then mm -hmm. they matter so little now that company's been sold to you know, another telecom company and, yeah. and and many of the stores were shuttered or sold off to other businesses that's what happens when Josh and I leave <laughs> that's right <laughs> that's what we like to tell ourselves company how shuts important down. we are well TK <laughs> I want to thank you for being here today, yeah, man. Dude, you man, are doing so something really meaningful. I want to encourage folks to check out your podcast, Office Hours. I want them to really look at your blog and your writings over at tkcoleman.com. It's one of four blogs that I subscribe to. So thank you so much for that. Is there anywhere else we should point our audience today? Oh, man. Um, <laughs> here's some good books on, on the topic, okay? Okay. Uh, one, Nonviolent Communication. Check that one out. Uh, I, I forget the author's name. Apologies. We'll put a link to it. Two, um, how to Pull Your Own Strings, Wayne Dyer, a great book on assertive communication, dealing with disagreement in a context where you need to exercise your right to terminate conversations that aren't create, creating value for you. Uh, another one, Jay Carter, it's called How to Deal with Nasty People. What about disagreements expressed by people who do it in a mean-spirited, uncharitable, trolling-like way? Uh, another one that my, my wife strongly recommends is How to Be an Adult in Relationships. Um, and then the Virginia Satir, Making Contact. Just a couple of little tools to level up your communication game. Awesome, man. It's beautiful. Yeah. Thanks for being You're here You're awesome, dude. Thank Thanks for so having much. me, guys. Appreciate it's fun. It, man. Yeah. All right, y'all. Love people. Use things. We'll see you next time. See ya. Thanks for your support. Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing you think that you need. 
Every little thing that's just feeding your greed Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it Every little thing that you gotta have Every little thing that you gotta have You gotta reach for And you gotta grab Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it So tear your eyes away Or tear 